You're listening to Once Upon a Time, a teaching series from Formation Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. In this series, we take a fresh look at some of the most familiar stories of Jesus in hopes of being changed from the inside out. For more information about Formation Church, visit our website at formationslc.com. As you may or may not know, we're in a series uh, that I have called Once Upon a Time. If you don't know, over one-third of everything that Jesus spoke in the Gospels comes to us in story form called parable. And these parables are pictures of God's kingdom breaking into the world. And so for those of us who are followers of Jesus, each of these parables that Jesus teaches, these stories, they paint a picture of what our lives could look like when they are in alignment with our true identity as children of God. Now, the problem that we're wrestling with every week is that there's always some degree of dissonance between who we are as children of God and the way that we choose to live in this world. And the reason that I want to continue to bring that up is because I want us to remember that we error when we read these stories as lessons for how to be something that we are not. Instead, we read them through the lens of Jesus both describing who we truly are and inviting us to come into alignment with that identity that he has given us as his sons and daughters. And so this morning, we are going to sit with a story that Jesus tells about what may just be, what I would argue, is the number one characteristic that God finds relationally repelling. Now, we all have things that repel us relationally, right? So they could be the attitudes, the the habits, the behaviors that make us want to run away from a relationship rather than lean into it. And they may be different for all of us, but let me just give you an example from my own life. I find pretentious behavior to be relationally repelling. Now, we all know what it means to be pretentious, I think. It means attempting to impress someone by affecting greater importance than is actually possessed. So in essence, it means to pretend to be uh, more important than what one actually is. Now, when we were starting our first church in Chicago, I remember, Pastor Tyler will remember this, we were laughing about it this week. We met with this young guy who had conveyed some interest in not only becoming a part of our church, but really was interested in becoming an integral part of our staff team. Now, typically this would be very, very exciting because to start something from nothing is a terrifying experience, especially when it's a church. And so when anyone express interest, it's immensely encouraging. Yet the longer we sat and we talked with this guy, the more that this off-putting, pretentious spirit started to become more and more apparent with him. And I remember the very moment when the wheels totally fell off of this conversation. We'd been chatting for a while, and he made the claim that not only did he want to be a part of our team, but he was going to raise his own salary. Now, as an employer, that's like a slam dunk. You can suck if you raise your own salary. I barely care. <laughs> so it's, it sounded so, so great, but then I remember the sentence. He goes, you know, if you guys are interested in me, I could activate my contacts, see what I come up with. And there was something about the way that he said, activate my contacts, that I was like, dude, unless you were in the CIA, I don't ever want to hear that sentence come out of your mouth. So that was, that was it for me. It was pretentious behavior, and I find pretentious behavior personally so relationally repelling. 
Now, the story that we're going to sit with this morning informs us that there is at least one characteristic that also repels God. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 18, specifically verses 9 to 14. So if you have a Bible or a mobile app you like to read on, you can open that. Luke 18, 9 to 14, all the scripture will be on the screen as well. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, that's totally fine. But this morning, we want to look at the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now, just to set this up, if you don't know, this gospel that we call Luke's gospel is written in the form of a letter to a man named Theophilus. Now, Theophilus was a man, we don't know very much about him, but he would have been a man of of pretty significant wealth because he commissioned Luke to write him an orderly account of the life of Jesus and then the birth of the early church, which is why we have two volumes in Luke and then the book of Acts. That's really the story that those two books tell. Now, Luke was a doctor by trade. He was also the traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. And we're dropping in here in Luke's gospel on yet another scene where Jesus is preaching and teaching, and he's telling stories. And unlike some of the other parables, Luke actually tells us exactly What prompted this story? So look with me at Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. It says, He, so speaking of Jesus, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they looked down on everyone else. So this setting shouldn't be super hard for us to imagine. Jesus has some people who are listening who have fallen prey to the spiritual disease of self-righteousness. And what that means is, when it came to their standing with God, Luke says, they trusted in themselves. So in essence, that means that they believed that their own good works were enough to put them in God's favor. So because of what they did, because of the way they behaved, God was obligated to love them, God was obligated to forgive them, God was obligated to welcome them into relationship. Additionally, because of that pride that they felt in their own righteousness, Luke says, They looked down on everyone else. So their basic posture was very, very simple. Their posture was, we're awesome. Everyone who's not like us sucks. Now that should not be, again, super hard for us to imagine because that's the same problem that plagues not only our modern culture in general, but our modern Christian culture in particular. One of the parts of my own experience I'm most thankful for is that I've had the privilege of being a part of a very wide variety of denominations and networks and theological tribes. And some people, which again, there's pros and cons to both, but some people grow up in the same lane their whole lives. But I'm really thankful for the diversity of experience that I've had within Christian faith. My earliest memories of church are of attending a Methodist church with my mom. And then when my mom married my dad, who adopted my brother and I, he was Seventh-day Adventist. And then we were going with my mom on Sunday nights to a Pentecostal Assembly of God church, which if you don't know, those are two very, very different experiences. It was like spiritual whiplash every weekend just going, what is happening inside of my six-year-old mind right now? Now, in my adult life, I had the privilege of being a part of a seeker-sensitive church. I worked at a church that followed the purpose-driven model. I planted with a reformed network that was filled with almost every denomination imaginable. So just in my own life, I've had the privilege of being a part of five denominations and pastoring in four different networks. Now, here's what that very diverse set of relationship means for me. I have a very weird Facebook feed. There are just people all over the map on so many different issues, and the truth is, I really do love that. But what saddens me 
is how often I see the seed of this very same spirit that Luke says prompted Jesus' story on my Facebook feed. So we have people who believe so deeply in their own righteousness. They believe so deeply in their own positions, so deeply in their own performance that they look down on those with whom they differ. But even more concerning is the fact that when I pay attention, I see that same seed in my own heart. And what that means is I need this story, and my guess is so do you. So look with me at verse 10. Jesus starts his story and he says, Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. So pause there again. Like many of Jesus' parables, this one derives its power from a comparison of opposites. So when Jesus says two men went up to the temple to pray, and then he goes on to say that one was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector, his listeners would have thought, well, that's two people who could not be more different from one another. Now, one of the dangers that we face every time we open the Bible is reading our own presuppositions into the text. And all of us do it. It's something we have to be aware of and and fight against. And there's an example of that in this story because If you're like me, you're prone to do that the moment you read the word Pharisee. See, the word Pharisee, because of centuries of interpretation, it it has led us to this place where we equate being a Pharisee with spiritual pride and legalism. But we have to understand that to Jesus' Jewish listeners, which is primarily who would have been sitting with him, the Pharisees were the picture of righteousness. They were famed for their piety. They were famed for their sincere desire to uphold the Mosaic law. They have developed, and understandably and rightfully so, a bad reputation in many ways. But these men, in particular, were very serious about obeying God. Their whole life was committed to that. And so that's what they were known for. So when Jesus describes a Pharisee standing in the temple and praying, everybody listening is like, well, of course he is. That's what Pharisees do. But the second player in the story is the one that would have prompted surprise. To say that the relationship between the Jewish people and tax collectors was contentious would be a gross understatement. The tax collectors in their culture, if you don't know this, they were the oppressive arm of the Roman Empire that ruled the Jews in the first century. And so these tax collectors, they had to bid or they had to purchase the right to collect taxes in any specific region, and they were notorious for their dishonesty. They were... Everything they raised beyond their contract was pure profit. And so as a result of that, they would cheat the people they taxed in order to line their own pockets. And what made this even worse is that many, if not most of them, were Jewish people. And so they were viewed as traitors. They were working for this oppressive presence in their lives. It was so bad that the Mishnah, which was like a rabbinic commentary of sorts, classified tax collectors with murderers, and with robbers, okay? So you may not like the IRS, but we tend to not put them in the same category as serial killers. But the Jewish people did with tax collectors. They saw them in the same way. And so the point was, while no one listening is shocked that a Pharisee would be praying in the the temple, everyone would have been surprised to find a tax collector doing the same. Look at verse 11. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. This is an amazing prayer, okay? That's the tone you have to read this prayer in, okay? God, I thank you. I am not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. 
I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, I want you to notice the contrast between both their posture and their prayers. The Pharisee stands with great confidence and prays this prayer that is filled with boasting about how awesome he is, specifically because he is not like those that he labels as greedy, unrighteous adulterers. He's also shameless enough, just think about how calloused and awkward this is. He's shameless enough to look at the tax collector, like the guy's in the room. Thank you, Lord. I'm not like that guy. (laughs) Now, if you're considering, like, I'm not sure I want to come to prayer night on Wednesday, because what if that happens? That won't happen to you, I promise, okay? This is just this very pompous, pretentious, proud prayer. Now, contrast that with the posture and prayer of the tax collector. This guy has no delusions of grandeur. He doesn't walk confidently into the heart of the temple. Instead, he stays at a distance, and he's unwilling to even lift his eyes to heaven. His head is down. He's beating his chest. There's no pride. There's no comparison. There is only desperation. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So this guy is not in awe of himself. He is full-blown aware of what a mess he is, and as a result of it, he begs God for mercy. I want you to notice Jesus summarizing declaration in verse 14. Jesus says this, I tell you, this one, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So notice the contrasting effects of the hubris of the Pharisee on the one hand, and the humility of the tax collector on the other. While everyone listening would have expected Jesus to hold up these two characters and to say, be like the Pharisee, that's what everyone expected him to say. But instead, he says that the humility of this traitorous tax collector attracted the mercy of God. That hubris of the Pharisee, despite all of his good works, despite all of his righteousness, did not. Furthermore, that term that Jesus uses, justified, is a Greek word that was a legal term that meant shown to be in the right or acquitted. And in the same vein, all of these verbs in verse 14, justified, humbled, exalted, they're all passive verbs. Now, the reason that's significant is that they point to God doing the work. And so if I were going to summarize the message of Jesus' parable Very simply, this is how I would say it. God loves to lift the lowly in heart. He loves that. God loves to lift the lowly in heart. Elsewhere in Scripture, we're told that God opposes the proud. Pride is relationally repelling to God, but he loves to lift the lowly in heart. Now, again, we have to be very careful that we don't push any of these parables beyond Jesus' intent for them, meaning we can't force every part of every parable to mirror reality. So what I mean by that is we can't read this and think, okay, so we need to all pray at a distance from God, and when we pray, we all need to beat our chests because of how bad we are, and we need to only beg God for mercy. 
that would be to miss the forest for the trees. Instead, we come to these stories, and what we are looking for is the essence of what is Jesus' point. And in this case, Jesus is telling us that God loves to lift the lowly in heart, which means we do well to reflect on how do we move toward having lowly hearts? How do we not make the very common, I would argue, universal mistake of the Pharisee and fall into this place of self-righteousness? Well, two things come to mind for me. Here's number one. Number one, avoid human comparison. That was one of the mistakes of the Pharisee. Avoid human comparison. Anytime we compare ourselves to one another, anytime we compare ourselves to another group even, our heart will always fall into one of two ditches. And both of those ditches are unhealthy and unhelpful. So sometimes we compare ourselves uh, like the Pharisee does in, in Jesus' story, and we fall into the ditch of pride. So we compare ourselves to people that we think that we are better than. And this doesn't just happen in the realm of our spirituality, though that's absolutely a realm in which pride can be present. But maybe we think, man, my marriage is so much better than theirs. Or maybe we think my, my, my parenting, my politics, my financial management, my decision-making, it's just so much better than everyone else's. Now, even if that's objectively true, which I'm not sure that it can be in most cases, here's the danger. The danger is that we would drift into not just, this not just being something better that we do, but, but we this comparison fosters the belief that we are better than other people. So not just that we've got this one area of our life that maybe we're winning in a little bit more than the average person, but we slip into this place because of the drift of it that leads us to a place of believing, no, I am just better than these people. See, the truth is we judge the Pharisee, but often the only difference between us and him is he's honest and we're not. He had the honesty to stand and be like, this is the basis on which I come to you, Lord. I'm awesome. Now, you may not pray like that, but the seed of that is present in all of us. Now, that being said, comparing ourselves to others can also put us in another ditch. Some of us compare ourselves to people that we deem to be better than us, and we find ourselves in a place of despair. It's like the other side of the same coin. And so we think things like, man, I am nothing. I am such a horrible Christian. There is no way that God could love me. But you have to understand, that is not what God says. And that is not what God sees when he looks at you. If you are in Christ, God sees a beloved son or a beloved daughter, not some hopeless case with which he is constantly disappointed. So if we are to move toward more lowly hearts, we really have to work so hard to avoid human comparison because it always puts us in the ditch of either pride or despair. Now, that being said, there is something constructive we can do. Number two, I would call this practicing kingdom comparison. Practice king, so we avoid human comparison, but we do want to practice kingdom comparison. Now, here's what I mean by that. We can allow scripture to serve as a mirror into our own lives. See, oftentimes, we, we use it like, a, I've described this before as like a, a microscope or maybe a telescope. Those are two very different things, I understand, so it's not a perfect metaphor. But we use it as a means to look out into other people's lives and judge them. So we find like the two verses maybe we're naturally good at, 
and then we use that as a way to judge everyone else. But that's not the way that God intends us to use the scriptures. God intends the scriptures to serve as a mirror into our own lives. So we hold it up, and we allow God's spirit to reveal to us what's there and what's not. And when we do this honestly, I want to prepare you for the same thing is going to happen over and over again. Every time we open the scriptures like a mirror, we are going to see areas of our lives that are out of alignment with our true identity as children of God. They're going to be out of alignment. And when this happens, we can receive this revelation, if you will, in one of two ways. We can receive it as either condemnation or we can receive it as invitation. And that provokes two very different responses inside of our hearts. Now, when we read through the lens of condemnation, we hear God saying things like this. I can't believe that you screwed this up again. Why can't you just get this right? Why can't you just do better? Why can't you just be better? So when we read Scripture through the lens of condemnation, it becomes this source of crushing, shaming weight. But if no one's ever taught you, there is another lens through which to read the Bible. And it's the lens of invitation. It's the invitation of a gentle father saying, I know, I know how hard this is. But I also know who you truly are. And you don't have to do any of this for me to love you. I delight in you no matter what. And I also know that there is more to life than what you are currently experiencing, and I want to show you the way. If you will take me at my word and trust me, you are going to experience so much more. You see the difference in those two lenses? Like, doesn't invitation sound so much more compelling than condemnation? We can freely allow Scripture to reveal our shortcomings. We can let it reveal our failures. We can let it reveal our sin. Those are only a threat if we have a petulant father who is waiting to crush us at the first sign of failure. But thankfully, that's not what God's like. He is gentle. He is compassionate. He is patient. He is kind. And because of this, we can stand naked in his presence, the fullness of our failure on display, and know that he isn't waiting to crush us, but to lift us up. And so if we're going to move toward lowly hearts, we have to be so diligent to reject human comparison and instead practice kingdom comparison. And so as we get ready to close, I want us to be honest about the reality that most of us tend to lean in the direction of the Pharisee more than we do the tax collector. Meaning, we're all prone to some version of self-righteousness. Now, you might hear that and push back thinking, not me. I know how awful I am. In fact, I'm, I'm not even sure that God loves me. I look around this room, I understand why God would love other people, but I don't understand how he could love me. And so that might be where your head and your heart are at, but I want you to listen. You have to see the pride even in that because God says that he does love you. God says that he does want you. God says that he does delight in you. 
And so do you see how much pride it takes? We don't think of it this way, but think about how much pride it takes to believe that you get to pin a perspective on God that is contrary to the one that he professes to hold. The humility of heart happens when we embrace God's embrace of us. It's only in his arms that we realize that human comparison doesn't matter. We're all a dumpster fire in different ways. Welcome. Yours is not better than mine, and yours is not worse than mine. It just looks different. And so it's in his arms that we realize that we can allow Scripture to freely and openly reflect what's out of alignment in us, knowing that God is only ever inviting us to more, to more flourishing, to more healing, to more goodness, to more peace. That is the foundation of every invitation that God puts before us. God loves to lift the lowly in heart. And so let's embrace his embrace of us. And let's move toward bringing our hearts continually low before him. Will you pray with me? Lord, I just pray that you would continue to deconstruct and reconstruct our view of who you are and what you're like. We pray that you would use your word in a healing way. Lord, so often your, you, your, your word is weaponized against people. And I can't think of many things that must break your heart more because it completely defies the intent of your word. Your word is meant to teach us, to show us who you truly are, who we truly are. And oftentimes we use it as a weapon to wound or it's been used as a weapon to wound us. And so, Lord, we need healing. Lord, would you take apart any faulty or broken view that we have of who you are? You know where we picked that view up along the way. And so we just invite you to meet us in this place that we are right now. And remind us of the compassionate, caring, gentle, patient Father that you are. Lord, I pray that you would move our hearts to a place where we would embrace your embrace of us, that we would accept the free love that you offer to us by grace, that we would cease trying to prove ourselves, that we would cease trying to justify ourselves by comparing ourselves to people that we believe that we are better than. Lord, let us lift our eyes and look at you and see that when we compare ourselves to you, there are always going to be these gaps and that your grace is in those gaps. Mercy is in those gaps. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to relate with you from a place of humility, knowing that we could never do enough to put ourselves in your good grace. And so you opened your hands and you gave it to us in Jesus. Help us to receive that gift over and over and over again. Help us to not be too proud, too hard to receive your love. Even if we are here and we feel like we don't deserve it, we don't deserve it. We won't. 
And so help us to let go of needing to deserve, needing to earn, and instead just to receive your grace and be transformed into a people who are living more and more each day in alignment with who we are as your sons and daughters. We can't do this on our own. We ask that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen.